everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Professor Daniel Medwed from Northeastern University. He is the author of the book, Bard, uh, and also before that, Prosecution Complex. Uh, Welcome to our show. David, thank you so much for having me. So as someone who has reported on and tracked hundreds of wrongful convictions over the past 15 years, your title asks what I think is the toughest question of all, especially when I talk to people that are still uh, wrongly incarcerated. Uh, Why the innocent can't get out of prison? Well, that's a really good question, and that's why I wrote a book about it, because I think, David, as you probably know from your investigations and your podcast and your research, we know a lot about why innocent people go to prison in the first place. Eyewitness misidentifications, false confessions, prosecutorial misconduct, uh, police misconduct, ineffective lawyering, junk science, and also how the plea bargaining system puts a lot of pressure on people to plead guilty, even if they didn't commit the underlying offense. So by now, we really know a lot about why it happens on the front end. But I think what's less well known is what happens in the back end. After you think somebody may be innocent and is behind bars, and even after you've accumulated some evidence, maybe DNA evidence or non-DNA evidence to support that theory, how do you actually go about freeing them? And as you can imagine, because you've looked at the book, it's a very convoluted and complicated process. And why is it so convoluted and complicated? I guess that's like the million dollar question, but it's also like, what the person on the street is thinking like, okay, this guy's innocent. Get out. <laughs> exactly. So, so here's the big picture answer, and then maybe I can go into the small picture, right? So the big picture, I think, and the Supreme Court has said this in so many words, the trial is the main event. That's when the facts are adjudicated, when zealous advocacy by the defense and the prosecution is such that maybe the truth will prevail. That's sort of the idea. And we know that the presumption of innocence, at least in theory, attaches to the trial. But once someone's been convicted, either at trial or or through a plea bargain, the presumption of innocence flips, and now it's a presumption of guilt. So everything is designed in the system, in terms of the procedural regime, to support the idea that the result at trial was right. Because the result at trial involved an open airing of the facts, 
um, ideally with with uh, participation by regular citizens in the form of jury service. So the system basically defers to the trial. That's sort of the big picture view. The, the small picture view is, is how is this principle, like this big picture view, um, emulated or replicated in our procedural regime? And, and I think it's replicated in the following way. Contrary to sort of popular imagination, you know, you were talking, David, about, you know, the person on the street. If you go up to someone, and a lot of people have said this to me, they'll say something like, appeals are endless. There are all these opportunities to get out of prison. There are all these technicalities out there that can get the innocent and the guilty out. I don't know if you've heard that, but, you know, we, we all have an uncle who maybe uh, says that at the Thanksgiving table, right? And in my experience, it's the exact opposite, that those so-called technicalities, those procedures are designed to keep people incarcerated. So you only have one right to appeal your case. It's called the direct appeal. It's not in the constitution. There's nothing about the appeal in the constitution. Every state gives you this right as a matter of legislation. And uh, fortunately, we've never had to test whether a state that doesn't give that right um, has violated due process or not. Um, but that, that appeal is very limited. You have to challenge the issue, issues that were raised at trial or raised at the plea bargain stage. You can't go beyond the record. You may not introduce new evidence or anything like that. Even more, typically the only issues that can be addressed on the direct appeal are issues that were preserved at trial, where there was an adequate objection and so on. And even then, when you show that an error occurred at trial and you overcome that burden of preservation, there's a nasty doctrine out there called the harmless error rule, which says that an error alone is not enough to result in a reversal if there's all this other evidence in the case. So a lot of innocent people are kept in prison, even though courts have found errors in the case based on the misperception that the rest of the evidence is overwhelming. So that's the appellate regime. And then there are a host of other remedies we can talk about if you'd like down the road. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the factors here is this presumption that, yes. um, that, that the trial court heard all of this evidence and the jury made a decision and it was based on the facts. And therefore, you know, it, it's got to be really overwhelming to overturn that. That's right. Which, all things being equal, I think, is valid, right? The problem, of course, from what we know of wrongful convictions is that everything is not equal in a criminal uh, proceeding. That's exactly right. I think that's a critically important observation. The playing field isn't level. It's really tilted in favor of the prosecution. They have um, sort of access to all of the investigative files compiled by the police. If they want to investigate something, you know, they call on the police to do uh, the investigation. They have much more resources. And so even though they have the burden of proof at trial, they have access to more information. And so defendants are already at, at a disadvantage. And a lot of the tropes we hear, David, about the American trial, how it's the best system ever designed and how the adversary system works and how citizens get to participate in this you know, form of democracy and have a say in how we mete out punishment. A lot of it is belied by practices on the ground where we have defense lawyers who are underfunded and undertrained. 
who can't necessarily uh, do a great job at trial, um, not by choice, but by circumstance. You have juries that are manipulated by prosecutors through the use of what are called peremptory challenges to strike jurors that they don't want there for whatever reason. Um, so this idea that the trial should be the main event, I think you're right, is predicated on the idea that all things being equal, it's a fair uh, a playing field. And I think we know, as you alluded to, that it's not. Yeah, and and you just, you know, kind of triggered in my mind one of my pet peeves, uh, which is this notion that um, that the American system is, is really yeah. uh, good. Um, you know, one of the things, and, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I've been watching. Lucky you, to your credit. <laughs> I've been watching criminal trials now for more than 15 years. And, and one of the things that I've observed just watching these things is that the, the actual chance that a jury's going to get something wrong uh, is not, you know, what what you think it is. Because if you think about, you know, all of these layers of what a jury has to figure out, you know, most cases even that get to trial are kind of no-brainers. Like, yeah, okay, yeah. that guy did it. Um, you know, and I kind of have gotten to the point where I think, you know, kind of one out of every four is kind of a close call case. Um, and And so, you know, if you think about like, the fact that 97% of all cases plead out. So, so, so then if you go to a jury and, and, and we'll talk about the plea bargain uh, problem in a minute here, but if, if you go to a jury, you know, you're only getting 3% of the cases and right. if one, one in four are, um, you know, tough cases. That means that, you know, you're, you're only talking about, you know, maybe less than 1% of all cases where the jury could actually get get the wrong verdict, right? And, and so, and then if you look at some of the stats and projections, you know, I know in death penalty cases, it's what, you know, uh, 4% or something like that um, get overturned at some point. And so, you know, you're getting pretty close to 50-50 almost uh, just, just with the cases that the jury could possibly get wrong. That's not exactly where I want to be, right? I, I think you're right. And I, and I think you've identified one of the one of the key issues. We live in a world, a lot of people talk about it as prosecutorial adjudication, where the prosecutor kind of adjudicates the case because that person makes the plea offer. And we'll talk about pleas in a moment, as you said, David, so I'll hold off on that. But given that, and that's a term associated, I think, with a law professor out your way, uh, Maximo Langer at, at UCLA, if I recall. I know Davis isn't near Los Angeles. I know enough about California to know that. But, but I I believe uh, uh, Professor Langer is at, at UCLA. I might be uh, mistaken. Um, but the cases that go to trial then are the cases that are a closer call. You're exactly right. Because if it's a really strong case for the government, then the defendant's going to take the plea because it's too risky to go to trial. Except in some cases, the government's not going to make a plea offer because it's such a strong case they want to take it to trial. So the cases that go to trial, I think you're right, are an odd mix of really strong cases and really weak cases. And that should concern all of us. 
right? Uh, not to mention this unknown mountain of plea bargains uh, where there are, you know, a large number of wrongful convictions buried in there too, presumably. Yeah. Um, so, you know, let, let, let's go to the plea bargain issue because, yeah. uh, you know, and, um, you know, I, I think I've seen, and, and you can correct me, but like the registry of uh, wrongful convictions has the number somewhere close to like 20% of uh, exonerations were, were actually pled in, um, which makes me believe that it's a lot. Uh, um, there's a lot more than that because, you know, only the wrongful conviction, uh, only the pleas that are like of sufficient length of time are going to get exonerated because, you know, if you wrongly plead to a six month sentence, you're probably not going to go through the process of trying to exonerate yourself. I think that's such a good point. It's a tip of the iceberg for a couple of reasons. Um, the first reason I think is you're not going to be able to convince many lawyers to help you. It's hard enough to overturn a wrongful conviction when you asserted innocence at trial and you battled over guilt or innocence, let alone without an admission of guilt on the record, because a prerequisite for a, a plea bargain is, of course, that you have to go into open court and acknowledge that you did the crime. You have to admit it. So uh, when I was running, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a day -to -day, the day-to-day -day operations of a small innocence project in Brooklyn, New York, at Brooklyn Law School about 20 years ago, in fact, one of our criteria, and I, I might be not remembering this perfectly, we only took trial cases, um, or if we did take plea cases, there had to be five years left on the sentence for this reason. And my recollection is we almost never looked into plea cases because it's so hard to overturn these cases. Why would you pick a plea case over a trial case? And part of that is just you know, running a small innocence project is a little bit like a hospital emergency room. You're triaging. You, know, you look at the murder cases, sexual assault cases, the cases that are really serious, and you're focusing on them first. But what about all the you know, low-level theft cases or you know, a drug case or something like that? We seldom touch those cases, and one, let alone the plea bargain cases, one can only imagine how many wrongful convictions might be in the mix there. Yeah, I mean, and, and it makes sense. I mean, you know, and, and we can maybe, you know, talk mm. about the Brian Banks case since it's a yeah. high profile that everybody kind of knows. But, you know, here's a guy that, um, you know, is facing, um, you know, rape charges, probably a life sentence. He, he's a kid. Um, his, his attorney's telling him, uh, take a plea, you're African-American. They're, they're not gonna be sympathetic to you. Uh, she didn't really look at the case, didn't put in the effort. Uh, he takes the plea, takes a seven year sentence, finally is able to get out. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually he gets exonerated, but that's really the exception to the rule, not uh, not the norm. Absolutely. And part of it is, if I recall, he had a fabulous uh, post-conviction lawyer, Justin Brooks, for the yeah. California Innocence Project. And, you know, not everyone has the benefit of Professor Brooks, who's one of the best, you know, post-conviction litigators in, in the in the world, really. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but I think Justin was involved in that case. And he was. So I, I think you've identified the key problem, David, which is a lot of us call it a trial tax, where let's say, and this happened to one of my clients whose story is featured in Bard, my, my, my book, my client was charged with robbery. He was facing upwards of 10 years in prison because of his criminal record. He was innocent and he was claiming innocent and he, innocence and he had a pretty good alibi. 
he was offered a plea deal of three years and he turned it down because he said, you know, I'm not going to plead guilty to something I didn't do. I'm going to roll the die and go to trial. He went to trial. He was convicted. He got sentenced to 11 years. <laughs> then it took us something like eight years to get him out. And so at the end of the day, he's thinking, you know, I served twice as much time you know, for rolling the die, why shouldn't I have just taken the deal in a sense? Um, so a lot of us call this a trial tax, the difference between the three-year offer and the 11-year post-trial exposure was an eight-year tax on him going to trial. But prosecutors, you might like this, they call it a plea discount. It's like an early bird special, you know? If you take the deal, if you take the three years, you know, um, um, that's, you know, you're getting justice early. You know, you're getting a good deal because later you're going to get, it's going to be much more expensive, like if you come to eat during, you know, prime time. Um, so it depends on your sort of vision of this. From my perspective, it's very much a tax. You know, if you can threaten somebody with three to four times the sentence post-trial that you're offering in a plea deal, you know, a lot of rational actors, even if they're innocent, will take it. If they don't trust the system, if they're worried about getting justice, I don't know. I don't know what I would do in that situation. I'm innocent of a robbery, but I'm facing 11 and I'm offered three. I don't know. I'd like to say I'd fight for it. I'd like to say that I believe in, in the criminal justice system, but I don't know. Fortunately, I've never been in that predicament. Yeah. To be honest, I mean, 11 is, is, is like a short, uh, yes. short threat compared to some of the ones that I've seen. I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, cases where, you know, they can be out in a few or they could be in prison for the rest of their lives if they lose. Uh, and I mean, you live in a believe you can win. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> After well, what yeah. I've seen, I think I'd take the plea. <laughs> Well, you know, and especially, of course, given, you know, how there are disparities when it comes to race and class, how so many people of color are overrepresented in the carceral state and how people of color are overrepresented in the population of wrongfully convicted prisoners. You know, so if you happen to be a person of color, you might have more distrust of the system, understandably, than someone who is white and maybe wealthy. Who, who has a little bit more trust in the system because their whole life hasn't been, you know, predicated on bad experiences with, you know, the police and prosecutors. So there are all these layers to it um, that are, you know, inherently disturbing. So how did you get interested in this topic? You know, that's a really uh, interesting. So I was a former appellate public defender in New York at the Legal Aid Society. And then while I was at Brooklyn Law School uh, on a short-term contract, a, a senior tenured law professor, a legendary professor named Will Hellerstein, who's since retired, approached me about starting a small innocence project. We called it the Second Look Program. And we launched around 2001. And I spent uh, the first few years before I became more of a traditional academic, you know, running the operations of this clinic with, with Will. And, and here's what I found, David. I found that I had all these cases where we felt like we had credible evidence of innocence. We maybe had evidence pointing to the true perpetrator, or we had strong alibi witnesses who hadn't been presented at trial, but we talked to later and seemed really, really credible. And time and time again, entry to the courthouse gate was denied due to procedural obstacles. Things like you have evidence that you claim was newly discovered, but it could have been discovered at the time of trial. Therefore, you can't get in under this particular post-conviction remedy. 
Or in one of these cases, I was also handling the direct appeal. And because of the rules that I mentioned before, you can't bring in outside evidence. I was actually technically forbidden from introducing evidence suggesting that another person had committed this crime. Um, and so it, it made me think early on in my career about how hard it is to get someone out of prison even when you have credible evidence that they haven't done the crime, you can have evidence and no court or executive official willing to hear it. And how frustrating this was, and also how counter it was to the popular conception of this system, that a lot of people think there are all these trap doors that will allow you to get out of prison after you've been convicted, that the appellate and post-conviction process is full of all these you know, escape hatches. Nothing could be further from the truth. Once you're convicted, it is an uphill climb, to say the least, uh, to later course correct and prove that something wrong happened. So that's sort of, that was the genesis of my interest. So it seems like the, the cure, uh, well, the, there's kind of two layers of cure here, right? The yeah. first layer of cure is get it right in the first place, right? Yes, yes. Exactly. And a lot of scholars and commentators and lawyers have focused on that, what a lot of us call front-end reforms. So if eyewitness misidentification crops up in something like 70 to 75 percent of documented wrongful convictions, and that's what we think, let's change the way we construct lineups. Let's change the, uh, change the way we tell juries about uh, the um, fallibility of eyewitness identification. There are lots of front-end reforms. But what I'm trying to do with this book, David, and, and I think it's really important, is to also focus on the back end. Because no matter how good the, the mousetrap is at the front end, we're human. And like all things designed by humans, we're going to make mistakes. Innocent people are going to get through these safety nets, even if we improve those safety nets. So we also have to look at the back end and create an adequate procedure that really allows judges or clemency boards or parole boards to look at these cases with the equanimity and the, um, I, I think, the, the objectivity that they require. So... I mean, let's kind of talk about both ends of this, um, right. if, if you don't mind. So let's start with, with the point that, that you just made. So on the back end, um, you know, I've seen a lot of change just in 15 years, really. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, when I started, we were, we were just starting to hear about things like conviction integrity in it. Yep. Now it seems like a lot of DA offices have their own review units. Some of them work, some of them don't work. Um, you know, um, I've, you know, helped guide people to innocence projects. Um, you know, there's a bandwidth issue, yes. as, as you alluded to. Um, I think I've succeeded in getting one uh, person uh, looked at by the innocence project um, Congrats, that's an achievement <laughs> yeah exactly um so i i mean so that's obviously a a problem on the back end seems like you know we're much more aware that there's a problem of wrongful conviction than we were even 15 years ago um it is interesting uh you know uh, reading, um, you know, uh, some books from the from the 30s and 40s on wrongful convictions, and realizing that 
We've actually known all these problems have existed for a much longer time than uh, we've let on. Well, I, I assume you're referring to the famous, is it Ed, Edwin Borchard's 1932 study uh, about wrongful convictions? And I think he identified 65 cases. Right. And, and also uh, the guy who did, uh, I can't think of his name, uh, Stanley Earl. Yes, uh, Earl Stanley. Yes. Earl Stanley. There we go. That's right. Um, yeah, um, they had done almost like their own innocence project back in the 50s, I guess. Um, so, I, I mean, we kind of understood some of these problems even back then, but, you know, really since, um, you know, DNA and, and the work that Barry Sheck uh, has done, you know, everybody can kind of not even dodge the issue anymore. We know that, we know for a fact that there are innocent people that have been convicted and 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 now now the only question is how many and how do we get them out? But you know, have have we really made progress? Because it, it, you know, it just seems like it's still impossible to get these people out. I think you're right. And so I think on the one hand, we have made progress. The evolution of DNA, I often like to say this, it's provided a scientific arrow to the scholars bow, our theoretical bow, because now we have science that can prove to a degree of scientific certainty that was previously unimaginable that somebody is actually innocent. Say it's a single perpetrator sexual assault case, the biological evidence that's retained from the crime scene, you know, guy A gets convicted, the testing proves that guy B did it. You can actually document that case critically examine what went wrong, and we can learn from that experience. So I think at the moment, there have been 376 of those. There was one just the other day, Herman Williams was exonerated out of after decades in prison. But um, a lot of people think DNA is a double-edged sword because it can prove the innocence of these few people, but because biological evidence is seldom available in criminal cases, your average robbery or drug case or theft or something wouldn't have biological evidence at the crime scene, there's often this misconception that if you don't have DNA, then you're guilty. In a sense, DNA has raised the bar. And so for a lot of us who focus on non-DNA cases and that clinic I mentioned, David, before at Brooklyn Law School, that's what we focused on. You know, we're a little bit conflicted about DNA. DNA has given us insight into this phenomenon and it's allowed us to make progress. But there's also a risk that DNA could create this impression that the group is smaller. The group of the actually innocent is smaller than it really is. Um, and so, you know, looking at the front end, uh, you know, I've seen, you know, again, in this 15-year window, um, we've learned a lot. Um, yes. You know, we've learned a lot uh, about behavior. We've learned a lot about, uh, you know, brain development. Uh, we've learned a lot about eyewitness identification. Um, you know, um, we've, we've learned a lot, but the question is, you know, are we catch, you know, and, and this is probably an unanswerable question, but are we catching more of these cases that would have been wrongful convictions in another era before they're happening? Or are we just kind of finessing the same mistakes over and over again? 
Uh, you know, that's really, I have to think about that for a moment. That's a really good question. So I think first we are catching some of them simply because prior to the evolution of DNA technology in the 1980s, if you had biological evidence in say a sexual assault case, the best you could really do was subject it to ABO blood testing, right? Serology tests, which isn't very accurate and it really can't identify someone with precision. So what DNA testing did and was really a game changer and in those cases where there is biological evidence. Again, just a handful of cases, like an estimated 10 to 20% of cases would have biological evidence at all. We can now weed out the innocent on the front end, right? Because your lawyer could just ask for DNA testing, or the police could do it, or the prosecution could do it, and an innocent person is never even charged. So in DNA cases, I think you're right. We, the, the, we are weeding out people on the front end. In the non-DNA cases, which again is the larger group of cases, I'm not so sure, right? I think the fact that we're paying attention to this phenomenon provides a form of deterrence on police and prosecutors from you know, filing cases that are very weak for fear that ultimately it will boomerang against them and it'll be shown to have been um, you know, a flawed prosecution or a um, specious arrest. Um, but I'm not entirely sure. You know what the actual effect has been on the ground in your run-of-the-mill non-DNA case. I do know that public attention is so important. It's often said that sunlight is the greatest disinfectant, and the more we talk about this, the more we um, look at these cases, I think the, the more closer we're going to get to not curing the problem, but ameliorating it a bit. Yeah, um, there was a case that I covered probably 10 years ago, and it involved five juveniles. And when I say juvenile, I mean like 13 and 14 years old. Mm -hmm. um, and they were accused of uh, basically jumping this guy. They stole his wallet and his watch. And they were facing everything from assault to robbery to gang charges. Um, and so they were trying these kids as adults. Um, but there was a problem with the case. Um, the 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 victim, they were in the dark um, and the lighting was bad. And so um, it, it was interesting because it was a public defender case in Yolo County, which is where Davis is. And um, they were able to bring in uh, uh, Loftus, um, the eyewitness identification expert. Yeah, she's fantastic. She's and, and actually it was her husband or her ex-husband, um, Jeffrey Loftus. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, but in any case, um, basically, you know, they were able to get all but one of the kids acquitted. Um, the the one who was found with the wallet um, kind of got stuck. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it was really a fascinating case because you know it was a case where. In a lot of counties that didn't have uh, the resources of this county, there's no way those kids would have been acquitted. They would have all been convicted. They would have all uh, been uh, convicted as adults. And even the one that was convicted in that case um, uh, got off on the gang charges, so it became a juvenile case. I see. Um, which was a big deal um, because years in prison versus a few months. But I mean, the problem, of course, is, uh, you know, you, you know, in places like California, you know, you actually 
you know, as bad as the public defense system is funded, it's a lot better than, you know, like Alabama, where, where you know, we've read horror stories about, um, you know, non-criminal attorneys getting paid $1,000 to represent somebody in a capital case. Right. Um, you know, so, I mean, unless you invest on that front end, even with all our knowledge, not going to be able to do much. I agree. And that's such an important point in terms of investment. And, and I think the argument I often make is, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If you can infuse the public defender system with money, in particular, not just for lawyers, but also for investigative resources. Um, when I was a public defender in New York, our unit of appellate and post-conviction lawyers, we were, I can't remember, 60 lawyers, something around there. We only had one half-time investigator who couldn't drive, who didn't have his driver's license, okay? Okay, the, the, the uh, uh, prosecutors, you know, our adversaries in court, you know, they could just like call up the NYPD, <laughs> presumably, if they needed to investigate something. And, you know, it, it just didn't really feel like we had, you know, a balance of resources. So, but if you think about it, you're right. If, if you could have a public defender system that was well-funded, and this goes back to a point we discussed before, if the playing field at trial could truly be leveled or closer to being leveled, then maybe fewer mistakes would happen. And we wouldn't have to talk so much about the back-end problem of post-conviction DNA testing or habeas corpus or quorum nobis or clemency, you know, uh, you know, I wouldn't have been able to write my book, I guess, but, you know, I, I would, I would have sacrificed my book for the sake of justice if we had just focused more on the front end and, 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 and added more money to that process. So then on the back end, I mean, what is the answer here or is there? I, I think it's multi-layered. So First, in the book, I make a lot of micro-level reform suggestions, right? We talked about the direct appeal earlier. You know, we could change that preservation requirement I talked about and allow appeals courts to look at issues more broadly, even if the trial lawyer didn't object clearly before. Give the appellate court a little bit more uh, autonomy uh, to look at things on direct appeal. Um, and I also have a number of those reforms when I talk about post-conviction remedies like habeas corpus and quorum nobis and things like parole and clemency, I have a number of micro-level reforms. But then the second is I have a lot of macro-level reforms. And if one of the biggest problems is that the system values finality and efficiency over justice, we have to figure out a way to look at these cases that doesn't really sacrifice finality and efficiency too much but does achieve justice. So there are a couple suggestions I make. Uh, one, and you alluded to this before, David, encourage prosecutors to form conviction integrity units because if prosecutors who have access to files and access to resources are actually ferreting out potential wrongful convictions in their own jurisdictions, that can make it a lot easier for people who can't you know, get the year of an innocence project. Also, second, North Carolina is the only state that does this, and I'm curious what you think about it um, as a non-lawyer. You probably have heard about this, but North Carolina has a commission, an independent commission. It's called the Actual Innocence Inquiry Commission, where it independently investigates cases, and then if they think there's a credible claim of, claim of innocence, they recommend it to a judicial panel. And basically, once a case has the stamp of approval from this commission, you know, it's a pretty strong case of innocence by the time it goes to the court. Now, there are 
positives and negatives with this. But one thing I float in the book is that maybe we should consider having more of these uh, agencies. Yeah, actually, I've interviewed the founder of that commission. So it was at Beverly Lake or or Christy uh, Christine Mama, one of them, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, great. So, Fantastic. Yeah, uh, pretty interesting stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there are all sorts of different uh, options, I guess, um, to look at. Um, you know, one of the one of my thoughts has always been, you know, have you know cases referred to some kind of independent body, but yes. You know, I've talked to innocence attorneys and and I get a mixed reaction to that because a lot of them fear that if it goes to one of these bodies and the body is either, you know, not uh, sufficiently independent or, um, you know, they give the stamp of approval for uh, the conviction that it could actually be detrimental rather than beneficial. So I, I'm curious on your thought on that. Yeah, there's a debate in the innocence movement community, and we are a community about this. So you know, a lot of people take that view, which is we don't, we wouldn't trust an independent commission. They would carry too much power. So yes, in the handful of cases that are blessed by the commission, your client will benefit. But what about all the cases where the commission says, not enough evidence of innocence, I'm not going to refer the case forward. I mean, your client's going to be in a lot of difficulty trying to prove innocence through the regular court process after having been denied through this special independent process. And the same argument is often levied against conviction integrity units. Sure, they're great, but what if they only pick a few cases and they reject a lot of cases? Is the jurisdiction, are the judges in the jurisdiction going to basically look to the conviction integrity unit to make these decisions? What about all the cases where it doesn't make that decision? In other words, is the conviction unit, you know, both judge and jury in a sense of post-conviction innocence claims? My view is slightly different, which is the system is not working now. So it's worth trying something different because it's not as if, you know, the floodgates are opening and innocent people are, you know, running amok. There are so many credible claims of innocence and I document them in this book where prisoners were denied for years and years and years. And some of them, dear to sheer luck or um, uh, opportunity, managed to prove their innocence. But what about the legions of other people whose letters never reached an innocence project, whose filings never triggered an evidentiary hearing, whose claims have never been heard, right? We can only imagine. And, and possibly, I'm not saying this is necessarily the case, possibly an independent commission along the lines of the North Carolina Commission. It's not perfect. I'm pretty critical of it in the book, actually. Uh, but something that has the DNA, you know, to go back to that term, the DNA of that commission might be worth pursuing in every jurisdiction. That's kind of where I fall, but there's a debate. There's a fissure in the community, as you suggest. Yeah, and I think I think there's a good point to wrap up on. Um, right. One of my biggest critiques is that the people that end up getting exonerated it is by sheer blind luck yes. and and really nothing else 
I think you're right. And, and I think we all go through life thinking that we can control our fates if only we do X, Y, and Z. And that sometimes if bad things happen, you know, there's still a way to correct it. You know, I, I think in a sense, we all kind of need to believe that because otherwise when we face misfortune and we all face misfortune, we can't just accept it as random. We have to think, well, there was a reason for it and therefore it's a reason to avoid it in the future. Well, the, the truth is no. Sometimes it is just bad luck. Sometimes the biological evidence retained from your crime scene that could prove your innocence gets lost or it gets destroyed because it happens to be right under a hole in the roof and there's a rainstorm, right? And, and so we have to recognize that, that bad things happen by circumstances, but we also have to recognize that good things happen by circumstance and we have to continue to push so that it doesn't feel as random and as arbitrary in terms of achieving justice. We should systemize it. We should make it more of the norm than the exception on the back end. Yeah, and I think that's the bottom line is arbitrary justice is actually injustice. That's right. Justice delayed is justice denied. Arbitrary justice is maybe no form of justice. Yeah. All right. Well. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, as you can tell, I could talk about this all day. Oh, me too. <laughs> Thanks, David. Uh, that's Daniel Medved. Uh, his book is Bard. I really highly recommend uh, you get a copy. You can get it anywhere, any bookstore, online. Um, excellent book. Um, this has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justice for George Powell, all one word, dot com.